Would you guys agree that badass is a little bit sexist and that men are never called badasses these days? Well, only women. But it is just like this really? badass woman runs a company. She's a badass chikalaka who is like running a company, <laughs> yeah, Zumbaing, no. no. drinking Zima and raising nine no. kids. It's like it's kind of like the John Mulaney bit about how in the New York Post, like the, the taxonomy right. things. It's like hero is any man who does his job. <laughs> right. Hero tutor teaches kids after school. Badass woman is just like a woman who runs a company. Right. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Mark Oppenheimer, joined today by my co-hosts, Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. Who is here in Argo Studios with me. And the far off, on the distant land of Cape Cod, Tablet Senior Writer Liel Leibovitz. As we say in Provincetown, aloha. As we say in Provincetown, I'll have more tonic with my gin. Uh, tonic. <laughs> this week... A conversation that Stephanie had with actress Michaela Watkins, who is in the new film, Brittany Runs a Marathon. And a second Jew this week, Professor Pamela Nadell from American University. She has a new book out about the history of American Jewish women. Liel, you are now on Cod of the Cape. I was there last week. We missed it. We waved to each other. Are you doing Cape Codfish? Are you saying Cape Codfish while you're there? What? The Codfish. Oh, the Codfish for a fish that dies? Yeah. You mean, oh, Fish Godolph. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that if you friends, if you didn't hear last week's episode, some of the best stuff ever, ever on pet death uh, and and Jewish tradition, go, go have a listen. This episode won't even make sense unless you hear last week's episode. Leo, what town are you in on the Cape? I'm in the beautiful province town coming to you live. I'm W.O.M.R. You went full on Cape Cod all the way up to the tip. I love it here very much. My family and I, we'd never done the Cape before, and we stopped in Chatham. And Chatham's a lovely town. We had a nice week. One of my brothers was there with his family. My sister was there with her family. My parents were there. Two observations. First of all, I am not joking when I say that more than 50% of the dogs we saw were golden retrievers. Like, <laughs> literally, I thought I was – it was some sort of prank. Like, we kept passing another golden retriever, another golden retriever. That seems to be the dog of Chatham. I can't tell you how much I love the fact that this is where your emotional yep. mental energy was focused. Like, look at those golden retrievers. Well, like, good. Mark, you're on vacation. <laughs> now you're just like looking for things to rile you up and to bring here. To be clear, nobody doesn't love a golden retriever who loves dogs. It was just amazing. And look, if you're going to have a city filled with gourmet purebred dogs, goldens are the ones to have. It was just amazing. First of all, that there were, I saw not one mutt. Well, they keep those inside. (laughs) They're not allowed out. The mutts are shucking corn somewhere. And of the purebred dogs, more than half the ones I saw were golden. So do with that what you will, J. Crew. The other thing I want to say is the United Methodist Church on the main street in Chatham, right across the street from the Eldridge Library, has a big banner outside inviting all the world, all the summer people to a Friday night lobster dinner. Ouch. <laughs> Which is like a, a Friday night. <laughs> Friday night. Lobster dinner. Lobster dinner. Could, oh could, you, could you code for Jew free any better <laughs> than church Friday night <laughs> lobster dinner? <laughs> Which is just amazing. It also got me thinking because then on the way back into. Tickets uh, are free, but you have to convert. <laughs> <laughs> we also passed another church. It might have been one of the congregational churches that was offering a Wednesday night free spaghetti dinner. And it did get me thinking churches do like the free dinner thing. We should um, do that. Should schools be like free Tam Tams and, and Herring 1230 Saturday come early for services? Like it, we don't advertise the fact that we bring the food sometimes even better than like the Gentiles. Someone may have sponsored kids this week. Mm-hmm. Come by services. Aunt Gladys sponsored the good kiddish this week with <laughs> the smoked that fish. shitty one. <laughs> if we did, we'd go completely bankrupt because all of a sudden there'd be like 800 people be like, uh, something about herring guy here? 
Or the fact that there's like alcohol at these things. Like, come on, 18 year old high school students who don't want to go to synagogue. Stephanie, the first rule of Kiddish Club is that you don't talk about Kiddish Club. (laughs) So that's all I remember from my week on the Cape, which is otherwise just a lot of fun in the sun. Guys, keep bragging about how you went to the Cape. I went to freaking Israel. (laughs) (laughs) Can I talk about it now? (laughs) How was it, Stephanie? The other other Cape. It was amazing. Yeah, it was lobster boils and uh, golden retrievers. Actually, a ton of dogs there. And I saw a lot of like doodles, Uh a lot of golden doodles. I wasn't really expecting that. It was amazing. Spent five nights in Tel Aviv in this really cool Airbnb apartment. If anyone needs a recommendation, our super host is great. Is his name Yoni? Dudu. Dudu the super host. Sachi. It's amazing. He was the best. Um, I mean, I didn't didn't meet him, but his apartment was really cool. And so we basically pretended we lived there. We like went to the coffee shop in the morning and they like knew our order by a few days in. The delivery boy from like the Chinese food place knew your name. Exactly. Yeah. We had a lot of Chinese food over there. You you didn't only go to the coffee shop coffee shop, you went to Gal Gadot's coffee shop. Yes, we weren't able to confirm, but there's this GQ profile that Katie Weaver did where basically Gal Gadot takes her to her neighborhood bakery and speaks to every single person there because she knows all of them. In and Liel told me that he told me which one it is. And I like have done a lot of internet research and could not corroborate and I did not see her there, but it was an amazing bakery. You felt her there. Yeah. Yeah. Her presence. And how was the meetup? Oh, the meetup was great. Well, before the meetup, I I don't think I've told you this, but I was on the beach in Tel Aviv because in Tel Aviv you can walk around all day and then spend like an hour on the beach from five to six. And I was walking back. I had just passed out on the beach for an hour because I was a little bit jet lagged. And we're walking back and someone sort of comes out to me and says, are you Stephanie Butnick? <laughs> and I was like, you know, when you're an intro, I just kind of like assumed I was in trouble. And like, of course, someone knows my name and I'm like, have to go back now. It's like, and, are you from the Mossad? Because this yeah. is freaking me out. And this guy was Nate Strauss and he was like, I, he was in town. He works for Hillel at Michigan State and he was on a trip with a bunch of students and he's like, I can't make it to the meetup, but I knew you were here and I was like kind of hoping I'd run into you. And he kept being like, I'm so sorry, this must be so weird. And Ben was like, are you joking? You literally just made her day. So we take, we take a picture and I was like, let's take a picture. I'm going to put it on my Instagram because this is just the funniest thing that's ever happened to me. I'm literally getting recognized in Israel. This is the greatest day of my life. So I put it on Instagram and I say like, at Nate Strauss, great to run into you on the some sort of funny thing like, guess what happened to me today? I start getting DMs from multiple people who know Nate, either (laughs) through schools in Michigan or like he led their birthright trip. I got 10 DMs. And so I started posting the DMs being like, by the way, everyone knows Nate. And people were like, Nate's the one who told me about unorthodox. I keep posting and posting. I go to sleep, wake up to more from America. The friend who's cat sitting also messaged me being like, oh, oh yeah, I know Nate. I know Nate also. And I was just like, did I run into a celebrity on the beach in Tel Aviv? That's Nate of Strauss, Nate Strauss. is the hub of all of Jewish life, Judaism worldwide. Also, you have a friend, Kat, right? Yes. When you said Kat sitting just now, it shows oh. you how deep into your life I've been over these years that I thought someone had to stay with your friend, Kat. Did she break a leg? Did she like, why does she need a sitter? Well, I was telling Ben a story. I was like, oh, Kat said. And I was like, the person. The person. Because it like, would not be weird. But anyway, the meetup was amazing. And there were some people. We have to, we have to like break down the meetup. So we now have all had meetups in Tel Aviv. Right. There was someone there who had been to all three. And there were a bunch of people who had been to just Liel's and mine. The meetup hat trick? Yeah. 
And it was really, really amazing. Was Eliana Sager in there? Eliana was there. Oh, I met Skylar Inman, who's produced a bunch of pieces for you us. Met, you saw Skylar? I saw Skylar. I miss Skylar. I never met her before. She's it was great. really, really fun. Do you get something if you attend all three meetups? <laughs> like yes. falafel for life or something? Well, it was Eitan Marks, and he had been to all three. Eitan Marks. What a man. And then there were people who had met at Liel's and were just like seeing each other again. There was Nadav from Australia. We won't really have succeeded until a shidduch comes out of one of these, right? Like we need yeah, a couple that true. meets at one of our meetups, gets married, and then names their first child Liel or Stephanie. <laughs> I will say that I was told, Mark, that you did not cover drinks at yours. Well, let me be clear about this. <laughs> I actually did cover drinks for like the first nine people who came. What I did, no, I just want to be clear about this. Like, that's a serious charge because, of course, I could expense the mother. Like, why wouldn't I cover drinks, right? I think I covered drinks for like the first nine people who came, and we ended up with 15 or 16 people. At a certain point, I realized my job was to stay at the table and like schmooze with these people rather than go wait in the line and, and cover drinks. So, it, it like, it got a little, I felt bad that not everyone's drink did get covered. But soon by you, I'll be back in Tel Aviv and I will cover. I will just open what I should have done. Just opened a tab, which isn't the kind of move I normally. That's have. what I did. Like L- I don't Liel, have you, strong bar moves. I heard that you didn't get food for people. That people oh. had to order their own food, and it was not covered. I don't know from food. I bought alak <laughs> to anyone who wanted alak. This is this is my emotional, spiritual. Because before anyone got there, I was like, we need some food if people are going to be drinking. And everyone's like, this is so nice. Like the food and drink. They were like, this wasn't like this the other times. You put on the class, the classy meetup. Is that? How I was it is? just like, is everyone hungry? Does anyone need anything? So we improve from time to time. Yeah. So guys, I hate to go from basically the best news in the world, which is the love we share with our fans across the world, to just some some ugh, some some icky news, but I think we got to talk a little bit about the story that broke while you're in Israel, where Trump made a couple comments about Jewish disloyalty. So the Wait, first one- did? Amazing, right? The first one was, and this was I'm last- I'm sorry, who said, who said something? Some guy we elected president, I think. First, he said, I think any Jewish people that vote for a Democrat, I think it shows either a total lack of knowledge or great disloyalty. Then the next day, which was last Wednesday, he said, in my opinion, you vote for a Democrat, you're being very disloyal to Jewish people, and you're being very disloyal to Israel. And only weak people would say anything other than that. So I would just like to first say the most important thing here is I take great exception to being called weak. Um, how, how dare <laughs> That's he? That's your issue. <laughs> I, will take, I will take him and his orange hair on right now. I issue that challenge. But I guess I just wanted to do a little roundtable of our responses to this because I think Jews everywhere, you, you, you throw disloyal out. There's no way not to for us to feel something in, in our in our kishkas. Like, Stephanie, what did you make of this? Well, it's funny. It's like the dog whistle, but like the human whistle. The human whistle. The whistle. Right. We can all hear it. <laughs> right? um, no, I think people are really freaked out. And it's funny because we try to like take some time off over the summer. We're like, nothing's going to happen. And then just like shit happens all the time. Like this crazy stuff is happening. And I think people really, really, I think this freaked people out in a way that, you know, other stuff has happened. Like I remember during the campaign when he did that like Jewish star tweet with Hillary Clinton. And I was like, I think this is the end for him. You can't go after the Jews like that. It clearly was not the end. Um, but but something something different has happened, I think, in the past week. I think people are frightened. And I think just based on anecdotal evidence and, you know, the conversations in our Facebook group, it's different. It's dark and it's scary for a lot of people. My my gut reaction is just like it's such a cynical play that it, it it's not surprising, right? Because he, this is a truly cynical person. I just resent 
Jews being used as a pawn, right? Like he actually doesn't care about the Jews in the sense he's basically just courting votes. And the idea that he's now associating the Democrats, he's basically making like Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib the face of the Democratic Party. That's what he's trying to do. And when, with that whole thing that happened with not letting them into Israel, which happened while I was there. And I, you know, was just a bizarre thing to witness from there. His tactical move is to say like, OK, all Democrats are, you know, BDS supporting anti-Israel people, which is obviously not the case. And what now he's trying to do is basically say like Jews shouldn't vote Democrat. I think that it's just disgusting because I resent being used as a pawn. I got a text message from a uh, forever friend of the show, Gavriel Savitt-Woods, now newly resettled in Springfield, Illinois. He's gone? Uh, he's gone. And by the way, if you're, you know, I think he's searching for some Jewish community in Springfield, Illinois. If anyone is from the hundred mile radius around there, you know, have him and, and Livia and and their baby, uh, Lilia Maytal over for Shabbos. Uh, but he sent me a text. Uh, this is so August 21st. So back then. And he said, you know what I wish? I wish that people who don't care about Jews would just stop fucking talking about Jews. Like, leave us a Alone, you know, and that's sort of the way I feel is like you need to love us a little to have an opinion. Like you yeah. need to earn your opinion card a little bit to, the, to then tell us who is a good Jew and who is not. A right. Good Jew. And for all the time he did at the University of Pennsylvania, I don't think <laughs> Trump ever developed that kind of affection for Jews. Leah, what did you make of this whole brouhaha? So first of all, let me say how incredibly difficult it is to be thoughtful and mindful of politics after having enjoyed like a dinner of salmon and white Negroni <laughs> on the bay. Like it just it makes your capacity for involved? outrage after like, your Friday diminish, night by eighty five percent. But look, as a sort of you know resident right winger or whatever on the show. Wait, what? Um, I, I, which may come as a shock to those of you just tuning in. <laughs> Stop oiling your um, guns, Leo, and just tell us what you think. I see, uh, kind of literally, see both sides of this issue. You know, this last week, I've been talking to a lot of my friends on the left who listened to what the president said and heard the kind of most nauseous, vile reiteration of the old anti-Semitic canard about dual loyalty. And then I've been talking to a lot of my friends on the right, including many Trump supporters, and there are those in large numbers in the Jewish community, which may come as a surprise to some, uh, who basically heard the president saying, you know, the Democratic Party doesn't love Israel, doesn't support, uh, you know, kind of causes that Jews should support, and therefore there's really no reason to vote for them. Uh, and, and to these people, it was a completely non-problematic, non-issue type statement. Here's a point I want to make. Both of these interpretations are completely fine. There's only one thing that's not fine, which is the fact that these statements were made very clearly, like so many other statements that have been made, like so many other statements that will be made, for no other reason than to kind of create a cudgel issue that breaks the community apart into people who support Trump and people who don't support Trump. This is like apprentice logic, right? Like the people who win, the people who lose. Team A, Team B. Now, this is the one thing that this community cannot afford. If if Jewish communal life in the year 2019 becomes all about do you support X or Y rather than can you actually live together with people who have positions that are fundamentally radically different than yours? Can you have space in your mind and your heart not to scream white supremacist or Hamas loving terrorist every time you hear someone say something that is just, you know, somewhat different than what you think? Then we would really, really lose. And that's the thing that terrifies me. I don't care what Trump said. I really want, and, and I regret that so many of us seem 
uh, troubled by this prospect. I really want people to focus on the fact that there is still a Jewish community out there whose interests or whose worries, whose concerns, uh, whose kind of, you know, essences are much, much, much larger and much more profound than whatever this guy tweets. I agree. I do want to add, I think you're both right. I felt what Stephanie was feeling. I agree with your analysis of it, which is we can't we can't let him divide us. I do want to say that the, the we don't we don't want to lose sight of the dog whistle quality or the human whistle quality yeah. of disloyal because conservatives are right to call out some Democrats when they use as like Ilhan Omar has language that Jews will recognize as dog whistles right that when they start talking about how Jews hypnotize the world or it's all about the Benjamins those are dog whistles but so is the word disloyal when applied to Jewish Americans and how they vote and I I really just what I want is for everyone to be held accountable for the fact that like anti. Anti-Semitism is real. It's often weaponized. It's often murderous. And we got to be careful with this stuff. Part of what happens when everyone gets so amped up and so over the top and rhetoric gets so extreme is we can actually forget that 10 years ago and 20 years ago, we had some taboos. And I'd like to reinscribe some of those taboos. <laughs> like, that's what I want from the next president, the next the next epoch in American life is for us to say, oh, wait, you actually can't say that. It's interesting because we've become so much more careful about language in general in America, right. right? We're sensitive to pronoun usage, which is something that was not the case, you know, even just a few years ago. I just think it's interesting now that, like, if... The way politics has divided us, if you support someone, you then let their anti-Semitic tropes slide, right. which is just like, that should not be the barometer here. <laughs> right. Do I support this person? Oh, yeah. Do I hate the people that are going after her? Yes. yes. And so I like right. say that this isn't... That nor, I, nor should the barometer be, you know, who do you support? It's, right. it's one data point among so many others. And again, this week felt really icky to me and and I was even doubly happy to escape to you know beautiful Provincetown because it was literally beginning to seem like the fault lines are so complete and if you in any way don't see this exactly the way I see this then you are insert you know big list of of negative traits unforgivable qualities right here Liel no not buying it final question to the correspondent in Provincetown when I was in Cape Cod last week everyone was so freaked out by the sharks I kind of thought it made swimming more exciting that there were (laughs) like I was like I'll be in by myself in the ocean. Like, come and get me, Jaws. Like, I, I might make the news. Yeah, like, how so are you, you see, feeling about the shark Mark, fears? Half the people on the beach thought that the sharks were completely unacceptable <laughs> and really raising old anti-Semitic tropes. Half the people on the beach thought the sharks were actually making a very good point They're, about people's loyalty the to the ocean. <laughs> really good news of the Jews this week. Not only has Trump thrown us the kosher bone that he so often does, but uh, straight out of London. This is from the Evening Standard in England. A new West End musical production about a Jewish family is at the center, C-E-N-T-R-E, of a row amid claims that only non-Jewish actors have been cast. Miriam Margulies and Maureen Lipman are among signatories to a letter from Jewish actors and directors raising concerns about falsettos, which opens at the Other Palace Theater next Friday. The letter also refers to casting decisions in other shows that could have led to, quote, Jew face protests. In New York, falsettos about a Jewish father who leaves his wife for a man shortly before his son's bar mitzvah had actors of both Jewish and non-Jewish backgrounds. But the open letter to the show's producers said, to the best of our knowledge, no one in the cast of the UK premiere is Jewish and neither is the director or anyone on the team. The letter went on to say, quote, that having no Jewish actors demonstrates a startling lack of cultural sensitivity and at worst overt appropriation and erasure of a culture and religion increasingly facing a crisis, end quote. All right. 
I found this to be about the most intriguing story we've come across, certainly in 5779, because we've we've talked about this a little bit before um, about. You mean, Mark, because we ourselves are not Jewish and yet we are hosts of a Jewish podcast. (laughs) Oppenheimer, Leibowitz and Butnick just Jew Jew facing it. Would our listeners stick with us if we came out and admitted that actually (laughs) you're a Methodist and Episcopalian? (laughs) Stephanie's I'm actually from Garden City. (laughs) Stephanie's a Scientologist. And and I'm a Roman Catholic. That's right. So, but here's this question, right? We've we've all encountered the controversies about, you know, can a non-Asian actor play someone of Asian heritage? Can a non-trans actor play someone who's trans? This stuff has been very, very in the news. Could you make a show all about gay people that cast no gay people? And I've said, I think we've talked about, well, what about, you know, shouldn't Jews play Jews? Mrs. Maisel, that's where it's come up most yeah. recently, right? Is is Rachel Brosnahan is not Jewish, but I think Jews have accepted. Have we given her? We've accepted her, yes. They're, they're filming right now in the West Village. I walk by it. She's been mikvah. On the way here. Yeah. So, but here's this case of this show, Falsettos, which I saw back in the original production when I was a wee theater in the 90s. kid in the 90s. <laughs> and... Now, to be fair, I went back and looked at the original Broadway cast and the more recent one, which had the very non-Jewish Andrew Rannells from Girls. We'll take him. We'll take him. (laughs) It's never had a lot of Jews in the cast. It's not like this was a show that ever had like Mandy Patinkin and Joan Rivers as, you know, but there's always, it seems, been at least a Jew uh, in the cast. And it was directed by James Lapine, who, no, it's written by James Lapine, who who is a Jew. But here we have this British production that's like totally Judenrein, just like Anglican after Anglican after Anglican. Two questions that I'm curious about. One is, and we're going to bring in a legal expert to chat with us a little bit about this. Would it be legal in America to cast for Jews because, or would that be discriminatory? Could you say no Gentiles need apply? But more interestingly, do we care? Have we arrived enough? I mean, we've talked about, well, look, there's no shortage of Jews in Hollywood, right? There's a shortage of African-Americans getting good roles. There's a a real dearth. There's no history of trans people being cast as in trans parts or or not much of a history. So there's affirmative action to be done. But Jews, like, eh, do we need it? I don't know. I think it's interesting that this is in the UK, that this is in London, because it's a completely different context for Judaism, right? Like, Jewishness is is different there. And I think that there... it's a little bit more prickly. I don't actually know as much about it. Whereas here, we're like, Jews are fine in Hollywood, right? We don't need to cast them. Though, if you think about it, I mean, because the real issues are both representation and access. So, like, if you are only casting white people in roles that originated as Asian, that means that an Asian person is not getting that part because, like, Emma Stone is getting it instead. Um, So I think the access to roles is important. So if you want to make the argument, I don't know. I mean, I'm coming around to it. Like, it is, I think I started these whole conversations being like, Jews are fine. We're fine here. And we are represented and we have access to roles and it's okay. But now I'm sort of changing my tune because I don't know. I mean, I think particularly in the UK right now, there is sort of more insecurity mm-hmm. as as Jews. And so I understand why Jewish actresses would actually make this a cause that they put their weight behind. For a second there, I, I thought that you said not access, but accents, which made <laughs> me imagine issue, like yeah. the funniest show imaginable. Like, oh, Edward, I say, where's that shalar for the Kaddish? I mean, that's <laughs> like, I would love falsettos. to watch that show just because it would be really funny. I was wondering, like, what exactly, unless they're totally transplanting it to England, is this going to be a bunch of Gentile English actors doing like New, York New York Jew, yeah. gay New York Jewish dad that the week offensive. before? Like, mm. that, I feel like they're going to screw this up really, really, really badly is what I think. Oh, you want to go to Bonnie Green? Grass. <laughs> Are you going to do Hoft here? Will you be doing Hoft Torah? 
<laughs> I mean, look, I, when I, I, I went to film school, uh, you know, I was young and confused <laughs> and needed the money. So I ended up in film school in Israel. And one of my professors wrote, this is like 15 years before this discussion was public, wrote this really brilliant paper about whether or not uh, it is fair that only living actors portray dead people, by which I don't mean people who have died. I mean, like, corpses, right? In, like, war movies and stuff. They're all portrayed by living actors. And I thought at the time it was just, like, this clever little lark, but now I'm coming around to it. And Stephanie, like you, I wrestle with it, and there are moments in which I think to myself, like, huh, there is definitely a double standard here. I can't, you know, fathom anything like this happening to any other minority, and there not being a major media storm, and it upsets me and enrages me to no end that this would not happen when the characters in question are Jewish. But at the same time, if I kind of support the notion that was completely, you know, uncontroversial five years ago, and I think should again be uncontroversial, which is acting as about people pretending to be things that they're not, then then why would I make an exception just for my people? I'm, I'm supporting this thing all the way. I'll go back to saying I want to see how well they pull it off because I think what's the real crime here is going to be they're going to do a really, really bad job. And I don't know that British Jews could do a much better. I mean, doing American New York Jew is a pretty specific thing. And, and the show is pretty American New York Jewy. They're not just incidentally Jewish. So look, if there are, you know, Daniel Radcliffe, of course, British Jew, like if he can pull it, well, he probably can. I mean, he was in that Is Allen Ginsberg. In it? No, but I'm saying like, <laughs> I'm thinking male Jew British. I mean, he was in that Allen Ginsberg movie and actually pulled it off pretty nicely. They have to cast him is what I'm, is what I'm saying. Or you, because, you know, you kind of look alike. Or moi. This always just like brings me back to that movie Prime, the movie with Uma Thurman and Brian Greenberg. And she like falls for her. She basically falls for her therapist's son without realizing it. And Meryl Streep is her therapist. And she's like the Jewish oh. therapist. And there's like a scene where she's like eating like a, like a, roast beef sale like she's like eating something and she's like making all these mouth noises and she keeps her wine in the fridge and I'm just like I think this offends me it was kind of anti-semitic Meryl is great but I'm like I think your portrayal is making me really uncomfortable I think you're a little bit too good of an actress yeah or Tom Cruise in Tropic Thunder as the as the Jewish uh, uh, producer I mean yeah I I love that (laughs) (laughs) the the extraordinary comedy Tropic Thunder Um, I I want to see the production isn't there something like so charming about the fact that you know freaking star of Top Gun is there like basically paying tribute by being you know a Jew on screen like I don't know no I would rather that not happen (laughs) we've arrived it's so good the Scientologists are down with the Jews Um, I would love to hear what the J Crew thinks of this one 914-570-4869 is it okay to to run a a production of Falsettos or any really Jewy show Brighton Beach Memoirs Broadway Bound you you pick and cast no Jews at all Guys, I also wanted to get a, an actual expert on this stuff. I was curious if in the United States you could cast for just Jews because there's an interesting legal question here. We got on the line my friend Jed Handelsman Sugarman, who in addition to being my old college debate partner, now teaches law at Fordham. How are you, Jed? I'm good. Long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> we called you. I'm not sure that makes you a first-time caller. <laughs> Kali, the first-time Kali, I guess. First-time picker-upper. That's right. So we were just talking about this this brouhaha in the West End of London where there's a production of Falsettos, a very Jewy musical that has no Jews uh, in the cast, as far as they can tell. And I was curious. I mean, we, we've handled all the moral, ethical, uh, and historical implications. But legally speaking, it occurred to me in the United States— you are allowed to cast for just black people or women if 
the role is just a black person or a woman, right? And I, I, I want I want you to tell us about the law around that, why you're allowed to discriminate in those cases, and how how do we think it would apply in the in the U.S. if you wanted if you wanted to cast only Jews, could you be sued for discriminating against you know a Lutheran who who claims that he can play a New York City Jewish guy just as well as some Jew can? Great question. Let's take the first step, which is what does the law say and what does the statute say about um, this kind of discrimination? So there's the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1964, um, and it sets up an exception called the Bona Fide Occupational Qualification, the BFOQ. BFOQ. And BFOQ, or for the Canadian listeners, this is the before the Bona Fide Occupational Requirement. Um, so the, the bottom line is that the statute allows for discrimination uh, when it comes to a uh, something where it's a, a genuine necessary something reason the quote is reasonably necessary to the normal operation of that particular business or enterprise in those cases you can quote unquote discriminate um, on the basis of religion sex or national origin but we when religion sex or national origin are part of that occupational qualification the statute leaves out race interestingly enough and there are a whole other sets of debates about why sometimes race can be um, a BFOQ. Um, but the real issue is not about this statute. It's actually about the Constitution. The, the Constitution takes, you know, the Constitution trumps statutory language, if you will. Um, so the, uh, the argument in the religion context, this is near and dear to, orthodox, you know, to an orthodox's perspective in the world, right? if you had a Jewish day school or a Catholic school, they could hire uh, for their religion classes and, and um, other kinds of classes that are close to the religious mission, they could say we're only going to hire Jews or Catholics. Um, similarly to that kind of First Amendment explanation that's in the statute, there could also be even though the statute doesn't mention race, there could be a First Amendment protection for saying, for example, Hamilton's a great example. Hamilton makes the First Amendment expressive mission of, it, of the play itself to cast Hamilton, ironically, as a non-white, as a person of color. Right. And so imagine there could be a lawsuit. Let's say Hamilton goes up in production and says, we're only going to look at people of color and a white person sues. There's not a lot of case law on this, but I think it's a relative consensus that, uh, that the casting director for Hamilton could say, we're only looking at people of color for Hamilton and for Washington and for Madison, Jefferson, because that's the point of the play. Right. And I think the same thing would apply to Jewishness. It actually kind of opens up an interesting question, though. From that perspective, are Jews considered what? A religion, a race? That's a great question. Is that national origin? or I don't think it's race. I think it's pretty clear that that's not race in the same way that there's uh, some, some question about whether Latino or Hispanic is race, that's considered not to be a racial category. But I think Jew, in this case, under the law, would probably be treated as religion. So what do you think if a casting director wanted to say, in a, let's say in a New York production, let's say Falsettos was coming back for a third time to, to Broadway, and they said, we're only going to look at Jews for these parts. You just have to be Jewish. Um, would that fly? And then, you know, maybe Actors' Equity, the union, or maybe a particular actor files a complaint saying, well, that's not right. We know that Gentiles can play Jews. Would, would the casting director have a leg to stand on? Um, the casting director would have a strong leg to stand on uh, to make these choices because they could say this is part of our First Amendment expression is to think about, is to, is to um, have someone that we think has the, um, 
the integrity or authenticity. Um, even if we might disagree with that view, that would still be their First Amendment view. But this also made me think of two pop culture examples. Uh, Seinfeld was kind of the opposite of this, right? Seinfeld, I mean, all those characters are Jewish, and they even cast Jewish people like Jason Alexander and Julia Louis-Dreyfus as characters whose Jewishness was obscured right, <laughs> by either Festivus or Elaine Bennis right. having well, or explicitly denied. You know, well, I mean, the whole plot of one of the shows of Seinfeld that um, Bennis was da- uh, 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 Elaine Bennis was right. dating someone of ambiguous racial background, and the joke was that that this the the, the boyfriend couldn't really figure out what Elaine Bennis was, right. but everyone knows that all those characters were Jews. Uh, uh, by, by design, even if they, the, the, they tried to obscure their Jewishness um, through the plot of the show. And it also reminds me of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, too, where you have uh, uh, um, Rachel Bresnahan and uh, Tony Shalhoub as two of the most Jewish characters in the show. They're not Jews um, in real life. So the bottom line is the, the First Amendment is very broad and would probably protect a director who felt like Jewishness was important or important not to have as part of these characters. So in America, anyway, we could at least argue that this letter that these that these Jewish British actors wrote would at least, you know, would be a plausible argument. They could say, look, you could have cast for more Jews. Uh, that's legal to do. And you chose not to. And, and we feel that there's they called it cultural appropriation. They said the Gentiles are taking our culture away. I would love to hear from uh, English or, or Commonwealth listeners talking about both the, the legal status in um, the Commonwealth, but also what do you feel just, you know, culturally? What do you feel in your gut about, um, in the English context, an entirely Gentile production of falsettos? Jed, you are married to a Canadian and Jewess. Uh, do you have a sense, <laughs> yes. do you have a sense of like, if this were in Montreal or Toronto, would you feel differently uh, than this being in New York? Oh my goodness, that's a great question. You and I have had this conversation about we the, have. The, Cana- the culture of the Canadian Jew yes. as being more European, and you know, they feel the, the Canadian Jew in some ways feels closer to London than to New York, yep. um, and closer to Israel, maybe, too, <laughs> um, and maybe more culturally conservative. That's a great question. Um, I, I, I imagine there is, uh, I, you know, probably cuts different ways for the, for the Canadian Jews. You get back to us on that one. Well, I, I think this goes back to the Yekka and the Litvak and the oh Hasa God. too, right? <laughs> You're just the going. The Yekka <laughs> is going to feel like, oh, we're we're more assimilated into the world. It's all good, and I don't know. Maybe the Litvak would would be more anxious about this whole thing. You might so. have to come guest host on Orthodox sometime, where we can work this. We're, basically, our entire charge is to work these things out. Uh, Jed Handelsman Sugarman, uh, your blog is still Sugar Blog, right? Still Sugar Blog. Is that S H U G E R B L O G dot com? It is. It is. All right, people should check it out. Thanks so much for uh, being an adjunct Jew of the Week. Great. Thanks for having me on. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y.
Hey, J. Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash uomember and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Our Jewish guest is Michaela Watkins. She is an actress, writer, and comedian. You have probably seen her on TV in the Hulu series Casual, The New Adventures of Old Christine, Enlightened, and Transparent. You can catch her in the film Britney Runs a Marathon and on CBS's new show, The Unicorn. Michaela, welcome to the world's most Jewish podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I can't believe I'm on the world's most Jewish podcast. It's amazing. I've been listening to it and I think it's a great podcast. Thank you. So do you get recognized all the time in LA? I get recognized, but not necessarily because people know why. I get the like, does your kid go to this school or that school? And I was like, no. And they're like, "Mm, which school does your kid go to? I know I know you from kid school. And I'm like, I don't have kids. So I get that or they think I'm someone's ex-girlfriend a lot. Somebody's somebody's like very damaged ex-girlfriend. <laughs> like, I'm not kidding. <laughs> so you said that you've lo- you look like a lot of Jews. So do you think people are running into you also being like, did I go to camp with you? I think that is a thing. You know, I've been on the red carpet and people are like, Lisa Edelstein. And I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> Sorry, wrong Jew. Wrong Jew. Wow. Uh, Amy, Amy Landecker. I'm like, not even a Jew, but okay. That is really funny because we had had Catherine Hahn on the show, who obviously was in mm-hmm. Afternoon Delight, that you were also in. We will get to that mm-hmm. in all the Jill Soloway universe. But she was talking about, like, playing Jews on camera and how she just basically, mm-hmm. like, does that now. <laughs> she really does. It's really funny how Catherine has really carved out a, a Jewish lady niche. And I've kind of carved out an angry boss lady niche, but I don't understand why. So I would say I first came to like really, truly appreciate you in Afternoon Delight, which is Jill Soloway's film from 2013. Oh, my God. And that's like an amazingly Jewish movie, right? A very Jewish movie. And, you know, it's funny because when after Afternoon Delight, of course, Jill made Transparent. And I remember I went to the premiere and Bradley Whitford said to me afterwards, he goes in very Bradley, this is a very Bradley Whitford way to talk after a, a big premiere. You know, I uh, I think America can handle all the transgender stuff. I think they're ready for that. He goes, 
it's all the Jewish stuff I'm not sure they're ready <laughs> for. <laughs> <And> I'm like, <laughs> it's so funny because, I mean, it's only like the oldest religion in literally the book. And like, we're just not ready for it. We're just not ready for so many Jews. It is amazing because what she's doing, I mean, in Afternoon Delight, that was like an L.A., it was like an East Side L.A. movie. Yes. Yes. It's so specific. And you play sort of like the queen bee of the JCC moms. That's right. Which is kind of amazing because she's just like so extra before I knew that extra was a word. But so was that like your first overtly Jewish character? Like she was... She was kind of like chappy. Like it was sort of just so much going on there. She wasn't my first Jewish character, but she was my first like Jewish lady that, you know, is probably the most stereotypical Jewish lady I may have ever played. I mean, because I did a series called Trophy Wife where Jackie was Jewish and I thought it was really funny. They just sort of plopped out with that one episode where she's Jewish, but she's also a lot of things. I think she was Buddhist as well. But that was my sort of first like full in... But I still wanted her to be very real. I mean, I was actually playing somebody I know. They don't know it. Thank God. It wasn't the most flattering <laughs> depiction of a person. But somebody who's just super like type A, gung-ho, camp counselor kind of thing. So that was probably my first sort of run at that in a real earnest way. And Jill Soloway is sort of like your Jewish Sherpa on screen and off, right? Yeah, she kind of is. She's like my spiritual guide and my... And I don't mean even in the Jewish sense, but although very much so. I mean, Jill is so important to me because of so many areas of my life. And she came in my life in the strangest way, um, sort of through an ex-boyfriend who worked with her. And he was like a really brilliant sort of smart guy, but knew it. So I was in super awe of him because that to me is my, you know, kryptonite. And so I just hung on every single word he ever said. And then she held her own with him and valued herself so well with him. And I just remember being so taken with her because of that. And then I realized, you know, that she heads up this thing called East Side Jews, where she gets a bunch of Jews together and they celebrate things, but in a lay on Mexican blankets and get a taco truck and have a band play. Like, you know what I mean? In the, in the most funky, fun, cool version of Jew events, which I was not, I didn't even describe myself as Jewish. I mean, maybe I would say that my bloodline was, but I didn't practice and all that. And then she told me about this thing called Reboot, which I was real confused about when Steven Spielberg made Schindler's List. He wanted to donate a ton of money from it. And so he hired this woman to uh, help philanthropists give away their money. And so they said, okay, well, why don't we go interview a whole bunch of Jews and say, like, what do you feel is really lacking and missing and, and, and not working in the Jewish communities? And all these Jews said, you know, the problem with young Jews is you don't marry other Jews, you don't go to shul, you don't have Jewish children, you don't raise them Jewish. What's the matter with you? The Holocaust wasn't that long ago. You're really screwed up. And they went to the young Jews and said, what do you think about that? And they said, well, I don't want to live in a shtetl. I don't want to live like in my little communities. I want to move to a city. I want to pursue art. And it doesn't resonate with me anyway. And so uh, that's why. And then they went back to these older Jews and said, what do you think if we took all this money and got a whole bunch of young Jews and brought them together and just talked about Jewish stuff? And they said, well, we think that would be fine. And they said, but we, we're not, there's no agenda. You're not trying to make anybody more Jewish. We just 
gather them up at a beautiful location and make them and just talk about Jewish things. And they said, okay, that's probably a good use of that money. And then they went to the young Jews and they said, what do you think about that? And they said, would there be other cool Jews there? And so those Jews, <laughs> so then they went and tried to gather cool Jews <laughs> and people like me occasionally uh, to go to a beautiful uh, location and talk about Jewish things. And that's what I did. And honestly, like I should be the poster child because it worked because I left going, Jews, pretty cool. Jew Jewishness. I like it. You know, I, I sort of didn't know it could be kind of packaged um, in a way that was uh, more relevant and more like that you could adapt Shabbat in a way that you see what's great about it opposed to like the um, like pointy the, finger, like you the things you, you can't should, you do, type of thing. Yeah, exactly. It, all of a sudden, it it just it, it was just presented in a way without pressure, you know. Um, and I think that's the key: is that when you're growing up Jewish, there's a lot of Jewish pressure. You know, your your associations are basically your parents running around yelling at each other because somebody forgot to buy the gefilte fish, and and the Morrises are coming. You know, so um, the Morrises, of course, <laughs> the Morrises, them of course. again. So that happened, and then when I met my husband, he was on the board of this temple here, and I was like, okay, now that's a step way too far. You're like, that's and a big I went Jew. There. That's a big Jew. I'm not big Jew. I'm over here Jew. Don't mind me, Jew. And so I was on the couch at the time. I was seeing a therapist, and I was like, he, I don't know. He wants me to go to temple with him. It's, I mean, it's crazy. I, I can't. And she said, what do you mean you can't? And I said, I just, I don't, I, 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 I got to tell you, I gave it up. You know, it's, it just wasn't for me. And she said, well, it's important to him. So don't you, don't you want to see what's important to him? Or don't you have curiosity about that? And I was like, yes, of course I do. I'm a wonderful girlfriend. And so I said, let's go to your temple. And I instantly turned into a 12-year-old who is just so, I mean, I just regressed to that girl who was like being dragged to temple as a kid. Because that's all you knew, right? That's all I knew. And the nature of my temple as a kid, you know, it was very, very dry. <laughs> it was a very dry temple. When I tell you, like, I got out of the car and I was like, ugh, do we have to walk all the way over there? You know, <laughs> my husband's like, who are you all of a sudden? And I just felt like how I always did as a kid, which is, am I wearing the wrong clothes to temple? You know, and I walk into the synagogue and there's this rabbi, Sharon Browse, and she's not only a woman, she's about my age. She's talking about all the things I care about and she's presenting it in a way that is so meaningful and beautiful. And there's like kids running around screaming <laughs> And nobody telling them to shut the hell up and like shaming them. And it was, it was so incredible. And I was like, wait a minute, this is also Temple? And, uh, and she's my favorite. And that Temple is my favorite. It's like a very, it's a very social justice-y kind of Temple. They care about working on hunger in LA and the housing problem here, the homelessness issues. You know, they're just really civic and really on a local level, on a national level. And it's just all the things that I really, as a Jew, like all the values that were instilled in me that I really, really, really care about, which is other people. So, you know, at ECAR, your synagogue in LA, this seems so lively and possible. But I mean, are, 
because this is something we've been hearing from so many people, right? Like, I grew up going to those dry synagogue services with the Morrises mm-hmm. judging me for wearing the wrong thing. And how do, mm-hmm. I, how do I get to a place where Judaism is more accessible? I mean, it seems so possible in some place like L.A., but do you see this as a model that could be replicable almost across the country? Oh, sure. I mean, I think by the fact alone that that our rabbi is a woman, you know, and her interpretation is is through the lens of a woman. I mean, I, I joke a lot with people like when when the Talmud was written, when when all of this was written, there were no women in that writer's room. And so we have such a limited scope. It's like such a male brain that has been interpreting for us and interpreting my whole life. And, you know, at my temple growing up, there was the big the big vote when I was like 10 years old. I remember was whether or not they should include the matriarchs in the Amidah. Right. And I think, you know, I don't want to out anybody, but people close to me voted against it. And uh, I just was like, screw this. When I was in Hebrew school, my Hebrew school teacher said to me, you know, because I, I felt like there was an innate sexism, of course, like it just is, you know. And my and my Hebrew school teacher said, Michaela, can you stay after class, please? And I did. And she said to me, I was probably, I'm going to guess I was like 10, okay? And um, And she said to me, I was like, am I in trouble? Am I in trouble for pointing out how inequitable this is right here? And uh, she said, you know, Michaela, I couldn't say this to the class, but I'm saying to you that women actually do have a lot of power because when you have your period, for example, you don't have to have sex with your husband. (laughs) And I was like, She's like, we fixed it. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, that's the, woo. And so I was confounded. And and so I think for me, that's when I closed the book. But having someone like Sharon, you know, who I we just have such a similar sensibility, I would say, and who really can read past and find the poetry and the meaning in so many stories that are so relevant to actually how we live today so much as well, and why it's so relevant, you know, I, I, I just thought was invaluable. Uh, when when I, we got married, everybody at my wedding was like, I want to convert to Judaism. And I was like, I don't know if you do. But, but you're like, you I just have a really good rabbi. rabbi. You, just, you do want a rabbi, Sharon, in your life. She's, she's amazing. And I have been to other temples. Um, I went to this really great one in Ithaca when my father-in-law died. Um, we found a temple because it was over the holidays. And we found this one temple. I wish I could remember what it was. They're there, you know. It's like people who are really trying to put together not your not your parents' temple, basically. And it was it was again so meaningful. It's like I look forward to Yom Kippur, which I never thought I would ever say, because I just sit there and weep, you know. It's interesting because you've become really politically outspoken um, in the past few mm-hmm. years, and you're one of you're sort of a very vocal. Jewish person, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and a very vocal actor um, in sort of like anti-Trump stuff. And I'm so curious how this all. First of all, I want to ask, like, if if that was sort of a conscious decision you made to basically start using your your Twitter platform to to talk about the injustices you were seeing, and and how much do you think this this sort of Jewish reawakening has to do with with your social activism? Um, I think there's probably. I've never thought about this before, but there is subconsciously probably something about finding 
your identity, which helps you find your voice. Um, I've never consciously decided to be politically active. I wish I didn't have to be. I wish we didn't live in a time where I was so scared about everything that's happening. I am so uh, nostalgic for like a time where I didn't feel like I needed to voice my outrage about things or my fear or my sincere compassion and or sympathy or whatever it is towards whatever headline is keeps popping up, which is just this onslaught of headlines. I wish that. But here's the thing. And somebody just asked me this the other night at a party. This woman said, can I ask you an honest question? And I said, sure. And she'd had a couple. And I said, go for it. And she said, it was a very bold question, but she said, why do you think you need to voice your opinion? <laughs> and I said, here's my answer right now. When you are raised Jewish, you are taught about the Holocaust. And the whole point of being taught about it is so that you never have to live it again. Never forget, right? This is what happened, and then this is what happened, and this is what happened. And it seemed so unthinkable that something like that could happen. It just felt like that is something that would happen once in all of eternity and then never again. Um, and when you have been educated about all the things that happened, uh, who scapegoated propaganda, fake news media, all those kinds of things, um, you and you start to see the same patterns emerge in almost like the exact same way. Um, you, everybody always loves to say, like, what would you do if you lived during Hitler times? What would you do, you know? And I guess I just know what I would do, <laughs> you know? Or maybe I wouldn't have done it then, but I'm doing it now because the problem is what, there was room for that kind of fascism and that kind of um, anti-Semitism to grow and grow and grow. And the contract we all made with ourselves is never, you know, that Jews made is never again, right? Like never again. And when I say never again, I'm not just talking about Jews, I'm talking about anybody. So when I see, you know, Latinx or, or, you know, trans people or whomever, Muslims, you know, and now Jews, uh, being called out by white supremacists, yeah, I'm going to say something. <laughs> You know, I, I wish I didn't have to, and I don't want to, but, but that's, that's what we signed up for. And that's who I am. And I, I, I would, if I were someone, else, if I didn't, I would mean I was someone else. It's so interesting when you're talking about, when you say like, what would we do if we were back then? I'm picturing you in your role on Transparent because mm -hmm. you were sort of like the Nazi era matriarch, Yetta, the grandmother of Jeffrey Tambor's <laughs> yeah. character, who was like trying to get her family the hell out of Berlin, which must be such a creepy thing to play. Well, I think we're so, I think, I don't know, maybe it's a Jewish thing, but I know so many Jewish women that are just super intuitive and highly, highly vigilant. I felt like Yetta got it. She could smell it. She's like, this tide isn't going our way, you know? And Gittel, her son come daughter, um, was like, no, there's so much hope. I found my people. But Gittel was like in this little bubble. And Yetta, who I played, the grandmother, who's trying to get her family out of there, could see it. She's just like, no, this is, this is not going our way. When I was shooting it, I would come home every night in the worst mood. And my husband's like, like kind of almost picking a fight almost. 
my husband's like, what is wrong with you? And I'm like, I don't know. I just feel like I'm just being attacked. And I realized like, why would I feel like I'm being attacked? Oh, because I was playing somebody being persecuted by, you know, Nazis. Um, You're like, it's the Holocaust. I mean, when we were shooting it, it was the Holocaust. So how do you decompress from that role? I mean, it's it's just a one episode that's a flashback. But how do you decompress from Mm -hmm. playing something so intense, particularly as a Jewish person? Well, it was a few episodes, you know, and you're also shooting over a lot of time, you know, um, different locations. And and Jill really, you know, sets that tone so that everybody, including all the camera department, the crew, everybody is everybody is in that place. There's nobody like eating a sandwich while you're doing a Holocaust scene. You know, it's everybody is invested. In, and the way you decompress from it is you just have to take a job completely in the opposite direction, which I'm sure I did. I'm sure I did some crazy, goofy comedy after that. Well, in the opposite direction, I would say is Casual, the Hulu show where you played the lead, um, sort mm-hmm. of like a twisted comedy. Mm-hmm. Will you tell our listeners a little bit about that show if they have not well, yet? Well, I was actually shooting some transparent while I was shooting Casual, really? too. But yeah, I, when I say the opposite direction, I mean like, go do a Will Ferrell Amy Poehler movie. I mean like, that's silly. Like, just go, or, you know, I do a lot of improv comedy and, or I do a lot of live shows here in LA. So, you know, I just mean like, you just have to kind of rinse it out. But casual, (laughs) I was always surprised that they weren't Jewish. Wait, so are Um, they? They're they're not? not. They're not. That's literally my only question for you about this show. Is is your character, I can't believe that. Yeah. She's a therapist. She's a therapist. Fred Malamed is her dad. They have that mid-century house. Fred Malamed is ostensibly her dad. No spoilers, but yeah. No, I know. <laughs> and Jason Reitman produces it, but not. And Xander Lehman created it. Not Jewish. So do you think you like injected a little Jewishness just like subversively? I mean, I just can't help it. But uh, yeah, probably a little bit. But I mean, I think there's elements of Jewishness all through it, of course. But uh, my brother couldn't have been more waspy if he tried. So before I let you go, I'm so curious because you are in this really supportive and creative and thriving Jewish community. And when you see something like what's been going on with the president saying crazy stuff about Jews, do you have some sort of positivity you could share with listeners who maybe are in parts of the country where they don't have strong Jewish connections or strong Jewish community or strong community at all? Can you like give us some hope? Yes, I can. What I would say is, you know... (laughs) Nobody gets to tell anybody whether or not they're a loyal Jew or a real Jew or not a Jew. Not even Jews can tell other Jews that. You just can't. I mean, Israel is a bastion of all different kinds of sects of Judaism and levels and of, 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 of how much you observe. And all Jews, all invited to Israel, all welcome. You know, that's the whole point of Israel. And my grandfather, you know, voted for Reagan and proud of it. And my father detested the guy. And they're still both Jews. Isn't that something? What connects Jews is sort of like what I was saying about Reboot, which is I went to this place where I was like, oh, I feel connected to you, but I don't know you and I don't know why. And we don't have to agree about everything except for this one thing is that we all have a familiar background or a stamp that we've carried with us our whole life of identity. And your best friend, your husband or wife, your parent, you don't have to subscribe to every single thing they believe, but you can still be connected at your core. 
Michaela, as your Hebrew school teacher calls you. Thank you so much. It's so nice to talk to you. Thank you so much. Brittany Runs a Marathon is in theaters and The Unicorn is on CBS this fall. Tell me, tell me in the day or the night, would it kill you to call or write? To the mailbox, my story about my daughter Clara turning the Shema into the Shamu for her cow rabbi Quackley continues to prompt great phone calls from the listeners. Here's a guy who has also tinkered around with sacred Jewish ritual in a way that does not always please the elders of Zion. Have a listen. When I first heard this story, I also... So, well, I, I thought it was fine, actually, but I said, boy, I bet they're going to get some mail from people saying that this is disgraceful, and apparently I was right. It actually reminds me of something that happened many years ago, back in, I think it was 1966, when I was a camper at Camper Mom, the Poconos, and there was a talent night one night, and a bunkmate of mine who played guitar uh, accompanied me and our talent was that I could actually play real songs um, by uh, blowing into the shofar. And uh, I think we got together and we played Puff the Magic Dragon, which was a popular song at the time. And uh, almost at the time we had just about finished, one of the um, rabbis who was there uh, came up and basically cut us off and said uh, we couldn't do that. And, of course, we were in no position to argue, so at that time I basically pulled out a kazoo and finished the song that way. Uh, later that evening, back at our bunk, one of the other rabbis at camp came in, and he explained to us that it's very interesting that when there are sacred things that uh, are being used um People have different views about them. Some say that they're so sacred that you have to keep them only in their sacred place and not get too comfortable with them. And he said one example of that was even the Hebrew language. When people started speaking Hebrew in pre-Israel Palestine under the influence of Ben Yehuda, a lot of people said you can't have the language of the Torah and the language of the Mishnah being used for people to be able to make a laundry list and tell their dirty jokes and give the account of a baseball game. and But other people said that's exactly how we feel we should use Hebrew. So obviously some people feel the same way about the shofar, and they feel the same way about the Shema Yehavta. And uh, you're always going to have uh, Jews on both sides of that story or any story. And um, if you want to, I can still play the shofar that way. So as we approach the month of Elul and Rosh Hashanah, if you want to hear me play Puff the Magic Dragon or the Saints Go Marching In on my shofar, give me a call and uh, we can arrange that. We just may take you up on that. We're still assessing our shofar blowing needs for the upcoming year, but keep listening. We may call on you. Another call we were super excited to get. We are still discussing the kosher cat food, dog food question. I don't even remember how this came up, but it's an important one. You know, if your dog or cat is Jewish, as you know, my dogs and cat are, what are you going to feed them? Uh, we got this call from somebody who has a deep, deep history with pet kashrut. Hi, this is Sydney calling from Rochester, New York. Um, I'm calling about the uh, cat, cat food being kosher. I 
um, work at a vet hospital, and I got a call one year that um, somebody had two parakeets that they needed to have out of the house for Passover because the bird seed wasn't kosher for Passover, so they were looking for somebody to watch them. Um, and I'm Jewish, but I don't get rid of all the hummets in the house on Passover. So I took them in, Tweedledee and Tweedledum, and they stayed with me over the Passover holiday that year. And I actually ended up adopting them and keeping them. Thanks so much for all you do. Give us a call. Our number is 914-570-4869. We love hearing from you. Hey, Liel. Hey. Do you know what the number 660 stands for? Do you know what the significance of it is? The amount of money in dollars that you should give unorthodox? Oh, the gematria for the unorthodox logo. You are both very close. It's actually the number of people who gave to our donor drive last year, 660. Now, Stephanie, do you know what the number 460 is? Oh, no. A much smaller number. 460 is the number of people who've given so far this year. So it was 660 last year. It's 460 this year. That is not auspicious. The good news is they're giving a much higher average amount. I think because $180 gets them a copy of the newest Jewish encyclopedia. But we can't have fewer donors this year than last year. Like that will not stand. That will not stand. So listen, friends, I've said it before. I want to say it again. Whatever you can give, whether it's $5 or $500 or something in between, we are super grateful. But please give something. We were at $460 last week, and I am hereby making you this solemn pledge that I will not stop annoying you about this. Until we get to 661, because there are a lot more of you listeners this year than last year. We've grown substantially, and we want the number of donors to I want to get to 666. Or 666. <laughs> which, you know, <laughs> a true Jewish number. podcast. <laughs> I will say, like, this episode, we had two interviews that weren't done in the studio with Michaela and Pamela. We sent engineers to both of them so that we could record them and have it sound as pristine as if they were in the room with us. And so that is sort of your dollars at work. Yep. Makes a huge, Your tax huge, dollars at work. Makes Thank a, you. And it is their tax dollars since it's tax deductible. Yay. So, so last year, 660. This year, we're at 460. Let's get to 720, which is a multiple, as my daughter could tell you, of 18. Thanks, friends. Tabletmag.com slash donate. Learn it. Know it. Live it. Give it. Do it. We are going on tour. We will be all over the United States promoting our new book, The Newest Jewish Encyclopedia. Check out where we'll be and when we'll be in a city near you at tabletmag.com slash unorthodox live. And I will say, unlike those gentlemen from the Rolling Stones that I saw the other week, we, we won't have, you know, armored cars waiting backstage to whisk us away to our hotel. We stay no, we're behind. staying with you we guys. We have drinks. <laughs> we schmooze. We take you out for dinner. We do nice things. Come see us. We love you. Our Jewish guest is Pamela Nadell. She is a mega historian of Jewish American women. She teaches Jewish history at American University. And her new book is America's Jewish Women, a history from colonial times to today. Hi, Pamela. Hi. Thank you. Thanks for that great introduction. Thanks for being here. Thanks for doing all those things that allowed me to say them about you. (laughs) (laughs) So this book is one of those like very accessibly written books of history, which is my favorite kind. These women... In this book, you, t- you sort of share a lot of little portraits of women, you know, from the early days of the founding of America, or even before till today. Can you just like give us a window into one of the m- sort of like more interesting things that you found or the, one of the more surprising women you uncovered? That's so hard. There's so many surprises. 
I think I, I think the one I I want to talk about is Grace Nathan. Um, let's go, you know, way back to the very beginning. Let's go to early America. And Grace Nathan was a wife and a mother, and obviously a sister and a daughter, and then later on um, a grandmother and a widow. And the wonderful thing is she wrote these amazing letters. So we know about her life and what she was thinking about. And here's a woman who lived through the American Revolution and she was around during the time that they wrote the Constitution and she wrote the, she was around during the War of 1812. And yet what was concerned her was the life of that smaller canvas that she was on, the, the impact on her family. So I remember one, one thing that she wrote was that one of her nieces had been spitting up blood and she was really worried about her, but the doctors were sure that it was because of her tight corsets. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, that has happened to me before. So. <laughs> and right. then Grace Nathan also had a very famous great-granddaughter, if I'm not mistaken. Right. That was the amazing part of the story because Grace Nathan's great-granddaughter was Emma Lazarus. And Emma Lazarus, of course, had a completely different life than her great-grandmother. Emma Lazarus never married. She was the famous poet. She's been attacked recently for her poetry. And she, her, her great poem, The New Colossus, is located in the base of the Statue of Liberty and has welcomed millions of immigrants to America for more than a century. And can you tell us a little bit for people who have been tuning out of the news cycle because it's summer and they'd rather you know not hear unpleasant news? Remind us how Emma Lazarus was recently in the news. Emma Lazarus was recently in the news because Ken Cuccinelli, acting director of Citizenship and Immigration Services, used the famous line from her poem, Give Me Your Tired, Your Poor, um, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, but he changed it to say, give me your tired and your poor who can stand on their own two feet. And it transformed and, and angered many, many people um, to, to see him take that poem that is such an icon of the American experience and to, to change it. That is so messed up. <laughs> And Emma Lazarus had great reason for writing that poem. She was inspired by Russian Jewish refugees who had fled pogroms, who she saw. Um, she went to visit them. They were interned on Ward's Island in New York because um, Ellis Island, uh, the Ellis Island Immigration Reception Station hadn't been built yet. But she also had great reason to um, welcome immigrants because her great-great-grandfather knew persecution directly. His name was Isaac Mendes Seichus. He was born in Portugal in the days when no Jews were allowed to live openly in Portugal. Portugal forced all its Jews to convert in 1497. And when he was in his early teens, his family fled to London, and there his parents remarried in a synagogue. As a historian of American Jewish women, do you have a theory about Jewish women? Was their experience in immigrating to America or in, in kind of becoming American as immigrants mm -hmm. different from those of other immigrant groups? And was there something in their, in their background, in their religious or ethnic background that made their experience specific or unique? That's always the really interesting question is, is why a book on America's Jewish women? What makes America's Jewish women unique? And I do, I do have a theory. I do have an argument. I'm convinced that American Jewish women had a very strong sense of self. 
and that I see that throughout the throughout the years, throughout the different eras that I write about. And I'm also convinced that one thing that binds many, many of America's Jewish women is a desire to improve the world, to leave the world a better place than they found it. And we can see that from from the very get-go, from um, the earliest Jewish women's organizations created to help poor immigrants coming in all the way down until today. Can you read us a bit from the book? I would love to. Um, let me let me set this up a little bit. I open the book by talking about some remarkable family photos that I was left. And one of them is of my great grandmother. And so you need to know that in order to understand this passage. America's freedoms, which permitted my great grandmother to keep her wig when others discarded theirs, opened an array of new avenues for each generation of America's Jewish women. We will meet the colonial mother heartbroken over her daughter's intermarriage, the Confederate spy facing down a general, the poet of the huddled masses heralding Zionism, the factory worker taunting scabs, the communist sending her daughter to school on Jewish holidays, the Holocaust survivor feted on national TV, the lawyer striding into Congress. Years ago, a Jewish woman asked, what is the difference between a bookkeeper and a Supreme Court justice? One generation quipped Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. This book is for the curious who want to know how that happened and who wonder about the generations of America's Jewish women, like those in my photographs who came before. Thank you. So obviously the earlier the the women in the earlier portions of the book are really doing a lot of of domestic labor. But what I was surprised was how many even like pre-independence American Jewish women were like running the their family businesses as well. How did their how did their reach extend from just the domestic into the more um into the business realms? One of the things that I think we're always so surprised about is we sort of expected that women, especially Jewish women, always had a kind of middle class model and were completely out of the workforce. And what we know is even going all the way back to the colonial period, that women assisted their husbands in their businesses, especially because the men traveled so much around the Atlantic world. They traveled to Europe, they traveled down into the Caribbean, and their wives were left behind. And then often frequently their widows were left behind to manage the business. And we find women engaged in, um, in in earning a living and helping out in the family business and working the family business in running businesses all across the American Jewish experience. Not new today. And it's interesting because that separated them from Christian women, right, whose husbands were not necessarily merchants or people like the Jewish men were actually doing specific things that that led them out of the country and out of their right. Out of it, their... It, 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 it separated them in particular because one of the things that's another kind of structural difference between Jewish women and um, other American women, especially in the in the colonial and early republic periods, is that Jews were by and large an urban people. So they were so their the Jewish women were engaged in business because they were engaged in the cities and they were in, in, in towns, whereas the majority of Americans in the colonial period in the early republic were agrarian. And there were some Jews who were, but by and large, that 
that's not what Jews were doing. Pamela, you've written a great paper about the history of Jewish women's involvement in feminism throughout several hundred years. You know, pretty recently, there's been concerns about anti-Semitism within the women's movement here in the United States. Right. Um, I'm sure you've paid attention to these battles with the Women's March and, and otherwise. Are you concerned about this? Are you concerned about the role about how Jews are treated in, in women's movements? I am, of course, very concerned about the anti-Semitism that has manifested itself from the women's movement and from other movements on the left. As a historian, I happen to know that it's not new. One of the things that I found um, that was really striking that I, I try to emphasize is to look at the women's movement during the United Nations um, decade 1975 to 1985 when they called it the Decade of the Women. And they held a bunch of international conferences. And at those international conferences, Jewish women were singled out in, in really terrible ways. I remember one Jewish woman is told, do not carry the bag that says you come from a Jewish organization organization because you're going to be targeted. A lot of the anti-Semitism that the Jewish women faced there, where they literally heard things like, um, Hitler didn't um, kill all of you. Um, what, well, a lot of that anti-Semitism was much like the anti-Semitism that surfaces today. It was also targeted to Israel. But so many of uh, the women we think of as at the forefront of the feminist movement were Jews. Right, right. They were, and but uh, but we think of women at the forefront of the feminist movement as Jews in the United States, and these were international conferences where they had women from all around the world. But you, but you're right. The um, the feminist movement, as it developed in the United States in the 1960s, many of its leaders, in a striking fashion, were Jewish women. So we think, for example, of Betty Friedan and um, the book The Feminine Mystique. And Friedan talks about, she, she actually wrote about, you know, that her Jewish identity helped shape her understanding of how women were othered by all men. Because when she was in high school, she um, didn't get a bid to a sorority, and she was convinced that that was because that she was a Jew. And Jewish women were uniquely poised to become leaders of the feminist movement in the United States because they were disproportionately well-educated. Since the 1920s, Jew, the percentage of Jewish women going to college exceeds the percentage of other white American women. Okay, and why is that? Everyone wants everyone wants a theory on that. Every, a Jew, everybody, <laughs> everyone's yeah, aunt I, and uncle wants to send them an email about Jewish superiority that has to do with why right. we read more. But why were Jewish women going to college more? Right. It's not. I don't. I wouldn't use it as Jewish superiority. I would. Ju, I, I would say Jew, Jewish women were going to college. First of all, Jewish men were going to college in much greater numbers than Jewish women were going to college. The American Jewish community especially the the East European immigrants and their children, their path to success in the United States was higher education. Um, first of all, they came to America and they had access to free public schools. Secondly, they those who didn't have, who, you know, kind of aged out of the free public schools, so you had to go out to work at the age of 12, they had access to all sorts of higher, um, uh, all sorts of education in night schools and in other settings. Remember, a Jewish woman, Henrietta Zold, creates the first night school in the United States in the city of Baltimore. This is long before she becomes the founder of Hadassah. And then, but for Jew, for American Jews writ large, higher education, access to the professions was the key to moving out of the working class in America. The working, the East European Jewish immigrants were a one, by and large, a one generation working class phenomenon. They didn't want their children going into the factories. Gosh, we were always in such a hurry. So ambitious and pushy. 
Um, <laughs> uh, the book is America's Jewish Women, A History from Colonial Times to Today. The historian and our guest is Pamela Nadel. Final question. I don't know if you've caught up on recent episodes of our show. Uh, do you back into parking spaces or drive in front end first? I, I First of all, I have caught up on recent episodes. <laughs> I know that you've had this major discussion. It's spilled over to your Facebook page. And I pull into parking spaces. I can't back up. Sorry. I'm And maybe it's a female thing. It has nothing to do with needing to get away right away. This is funny. I think you found the, the subject of your next book, The <laughs> History of I Pulling in the gonna, Parking Spot. I thought this was going to be a question about the word Jewess, which comes up in your book. Ah, but no, much more important <laughs> stuff we're well, covering okay, wait, here. Wait, so wait. So, okay, you've solved that one for us. Solve two more quickly. <laughs> Jewess okay. and Jap. Give us a sentence on each. Acceptable, not okay. acceptable. Um, neither one's acceptable. Um, Jap, of course, is a negative stereotype, and you've done a lot of work on that, so I won't go into that anymore. But Jewess is used in a certain moment in American Jewish history. I use it in that moment in the book in the late 19th and early 20th century. But we can actually see on Google Ngram. I don't know if you know what Google Love Google Ngram, Ngram, Ngram yes. I love Google Ngram. The frequency Ngram, so. with which words are used over time, yes. Over time in books. Yep. And Google, if you trace the word Jewish on books in Google Ngram, you can see that after 1940, it plummets. And then it, there's a little, little uptick after 2000. But the, I think that uptick, um, a lot of it is actually references to the American Jewess in the 19th century. And then maybe a little bit of the uptick is because you guys are using it on the show. <laughs> so this is our fault now. <laughs> All right. Professor, go back into a parking space somewhere. Thank you for being our, thank you for being our Jew of the Week. And everyone should go to an independent bookstore near them and get America's Jewish Women, A History from Colonial Times to Today. Thank you. Mazel tov. Stephanie, you have any mazel tovs this week? I have so many. First, I want to start out with a New York Times vows mazel tov. Leah Gottfried, who writes Soon By You, which she was on the show with mm-hmm. some of the cast. Mm-hmm. She married Isaiah Rothstein, a rapping rabbi and the lead singer in the band Zaya. And mazel tov. They just had a great vows column, and I think everyone should be reading it. I also want to say that we had a team lunch a few weeks ago. We were overheard by a listener, um, and we met Jane Vorkanova, and it was really, really fun. And she told me that she is friends with Michelle Scalrud, who I met on an AirTran when Josh and I were on the way to Newark to go to L.A. for our live show. Anyway, Michelle, who I now follow on Instagram, is marrying Dan Cohen this weekend. And we are so excited for them. And she did tell us where the wedding was, so we may crash it, but mazel tov. And then Jane's brother... Michael <laughs> introduced her. Jane, by the way, is like the Nate Strauss yeah. of the village yeah. because she came up <laughs> to us. What, what, what restaurant are we in? Sunshine. We're at vi- yeah, whatever Vish is now. Yeah, yeah. And we're, we're up eating there, falafel. We're having some falafel and hummus, and she overhears us. It comes up and says, "And by the way, I have twenty friends, all of whom love your show, and they all have events coming." Well, this up. is important because her brother introduced her to the show, and right. now he has a daughter. He has a newborn named Aria, which is one of the like most popular. Baby names, according yeah, to the episode well. that had aired right before Absolutely. we met Jane. So mazel tov to everyone who knows Jane Vorkanova because she is awesome. I'm going to throw in a mazel tov uh, to Holocaust survivor Jack Garfine, who was in the New York Post for marrying a much younger woman, basically. He's 89 years old, um, and he got married to 42-year-old Natalia Rapolovsky, a Russian Jewish immigrant, uh, last Sunday at Temple Road of Sholem on the Upper West Side. Mazel tov to wow. them both. And finally, a mazel tov to Spencer Grossman on his bar mitzvah. Your very, very proud Zadie called up. He wanted us to know what a wonderful job you had done in your Devar Torah. And we are so, so proud of you. 
Unorthodox brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Subscribe to our newsletter, bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. We often come to you live. If you want to book us or advertise, email producer Josh Cross, J-K-R-O-S-S at tabletmag.com. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodoxpodcast, on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Call us with your thoughts, 914-570-4869. Our show is produced by Josh Cross. Our associate producer is Sarah Fredman Ader, and our editor is Melissa Kaplan. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our social media mashkiach is Elazar Abrams. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. We are engineered by Paul Ruest. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Ruben Toff and Cantor Ben Rosner of the Mosaic Law Congregation in Sacramento. I love that the conservative congregation in Sacramento is the Mosaic Law Congregation. It's Taff and Rosner of the Mosaic Law Firm. <laughs> we come to you from Argo Studios and also this week from WOMR, the voice of the Cape in Provincetown. They are gathered together sharing a pina colada with John Hickenlooper and Seth Moulton on the beach looking at the sharks. With a lobster roll. Shalom, friends. And I just came up with a new book title, From Zima to Zumba, The American Woman from 1980 to 2010. You know who should write that book? You. <laughs> you know who will read that book? Also, just you. <laughs>